Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. This week we watched Kronos. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, please give me your review of Kronos. This is my favorite kind of storytelling device. It's a mythology put into a context. We've got mechanics. It's what Del Toro does best. It's the reason I'm really excited to do this whole season on him. I loved it. And it was a new movie from Del Toro, which, you know, how often do you get to, especially with the famous directors, how often (laughs) do you get to go back and see their, you know, something for the first time, especially in this instance with how many movies you and I consume. So Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, it was the first viewing for me as well. Um, I did get to, I got to read a really cool essay that was posted on our forums by Davey Mack. Loyal listener Davey Mack out in Tokyo. Um, he linked to this essay uh, that is part of the Criterion Collection website because this is part of the Criterion Collection. And it just kind of gives a broad overview of the movie. But the thing that I really liked about it is that it compared it to like old timey fairy tales. In like and not like the the Cinderella that Disney made, but like the really creepy, like scary, really spooky fairy tales. And I love the device that he uses in this. You know, this is a vampire movie, but vamp- the word vampire is never spoken throughout the entire thing. It's just kind of like all these little clues that sneak up on you as you're watching it, and you're like, "Oh, oh, he's a vampire!" Like, did, <laughs> you know, you, did you get you to that catch point. that going in. Did no, you not know at all. You hadn't read any back of the box or anything that gave it away? No, I, I had no idea that this was a vampire movie. And really, I mean, even with the blood, even when he was drinking the blood off the floor of the bathroom, I still wasn't 100% that it was like a real vampire thing. But then when his skin started burning in the sunlight, that's when I was like, oh, okay, straight up vampire movie. But not straight up. That's what I like about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a really, really fresh, interesting take on a vampire uh, vampire movie. And the thing that I really like about it, and this this was mentioned in the article, is the idea of irreversible consequences. There's something that's really exciting about the idea of you, you've made your bed, now you have to lay in it. Maybe you t- completely unintentionally made your bed. But now this is your life now, so deal with it. This, that scariness is is wrapped up in a lot of fairy tales and uh, and has dire consequences. I lo- I really I enjoyed it, man. The more I think about this movie, the more I like it. Well, I think that it's misleading the vampire mechanics. Uh, it works for the storytelling, but the story is as much about immortality as it is about vampirism. Mm-hmm. You know, vampires have always been kind of popular, but, but this was prior to twilight and all the garbage yeah. that kind of came along with that. Yeah. So, but if you look at a lot of the themes throughout the movie and you talk about irre- irreversible consequences, that's the, the draw of immortality is ultimately you can kind of outlive your mistakes. I think yeah. is always the, the draw of that. So the notion that, Every step he takes, he achieves immortality, but ultimately the the rules that in, he becomes engaged with and the actions that he's forced to take, I think 
the immortality notion wraps really well together with that and shows mm-hmm. kind of the, and I think we see a lot of elements of immortality. We see different versions of it and all of yeah. the consequences that go along with each of those. Well, there's like pursuit of youth, you know, we yeah. have on hell, uh, Ron Perlman's character, like is c- continually wanting to get a nose job. <laughs> you know, One of the weird um, reoccurring yeah, so I, I was trying to think about that, and I was thinking it was either one or two things, or maybe it's both of these things. But um, one, or now I'm thinking about maybe it's three things. So the first one is that to me, you know, it's that kind of that pursuit of youth and the pursuit of beauty, um, and I feel like that kind of manifests itself throughout that nose job obsession. The second thing is that maybe his uncle just hits him in the face so often. That his nose is just a mangled mess, and uh, and so he wants to get it fixed. And then the third one here is maybe it's a marker of wealth because he is set to inherit the wealth from his uncle, and so he's just kind of, you know, doing a little window shopping beforehand so that he knows exactly what he'll splurge on as soon as the will comes through. Well, and that um, that empire that his uncle has created that is another form of immortality the the mm-hmm. wealth and the power you know the name is on the building and he wants to inherit it so bad and his uncle is clearly unwilling to part with it yeah until he absolutely has to and that fight is centered around who gets that name because the name with with it comes power and a timelessness yeah, and and the clock motif is another thing that really resonates throughout the movie. Like the antique store is full of clocks. Yeah, it's a little um, bit of a hammer on that. <laughs> I get it. Little, it's little about time. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, you have the you have that. You have the um, the party. You have the guy walking around in the clock costume yeah. at the New Year's party. Uh, and then right there on the uh, Laguardia you know, factory right in between his name, there's a clock <laughs> that, yeah, that, that they fight under. Yeah. That they fight right in front of. So that clock motif goes all the way through as well. Yeah. And, and that, that idea of the pursuit of immortality without, without gain, like the guy's life is awful. <laughs> you know, Ron Perlman paints it perfectly. When he says all that he does is piss and shit and he wants to live longer. Like so, it's the idea of immortality for immortality's sake, almost with him. Um, and I don't know. Like, does he assume that maybe he'll be able to get out and and you know be a functioning member of society because he lives in the sterile environment uh, that he's created for himself? Uh, when we're talking about Laguardia, the the elder, um, yeah, his 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 quality of life is not going to be very good. And then when you have Jesus. He becomes immortal. He doesn't even want to be immortal. He's like, I don't give a shit about immortality. I just want to be the grandfather. That's all I want to be. Well, and the um, quality of life is no more than the the sterile environment. He mm-hmm. can't go out in the sun. He has mm-hmm. the con- the thirst, basically kind of driving yeah. and endangering his loved ones. He pretty much has to separate from them. And the effects of his skin, not to mention his attachment to the device. The device is not very far off of all of the machines that surround LaGuardia. Yeah. So yeah, in some ways he is the bug that's trapped in the machine. 
You know, he's he's the sterile biological force that's trapped in this giant mechanical foundry. He is he's like the human embodiment of the Kronos device. And that's the Chrono the use of the name too is it's overt, but I think it helps to recenter the the theme of the movie, not around the fact that he's a vampire. And part of that is in leaving out the word vampire throughout the movie. Yeah. But it just reminds you that this it's is like a. Do you, do you think it's like a Walking Dead thing where they they it's like a universe where the word vampire doesn't exist? <laughs> you know, like on the Walking Dead, they never say zombie, and the indication is that they live in a world where there were no zombie films and zombies aren't part of pop culture, so they don't call them zombies. Maybe this is a world where vampires <laughs> don't exist. Uh, it's, I you know, but the idea of a a life drinker is so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to think. Zombies are a voodoo-based uh, cultural element. That's where they kind of come from. But, well, now I'm trying to think back to where the undead comes in. I don't know. I'm not sure where this tangent my mind just went off on <laughs> to figure out, is vampire older than the living dead? I don't well, know. Well, I mean, there's always that that idea of immortality goes back a very long way. Um yeah, you you also mentioned names here. We mentioned Kronos, uh, and and how it's very overtly like Kronos means time. Or is, is Kronos like a? Is that actually like a Greek god? I think uh, yes. Um, is it the same as Saturn? I don't. Uh, I think he was <laughs> a Titan right technically. Now. If we really yeah. want to go on a deep well, dive into yeah, that, yeah. So the Kronos Kronos is the Greek personification of time. In pre-Socratic philosophy and later literature, he is a god serpentine shape in the form. Uh, he's serpentine shape in form with three heads: those of a man, a bull, and a lion. Cronus has a daughter and consort, Ananki. Yeah, and a bunch of other crap. So yeah, it's a Greek god. Um, so yeah, there's there's an overt naming uh, device that goes throughout this entire thing. And like, if we look at uh, you know, Mr. Grease, which is Spanish for gray. His name is Jesus Grease. <laughs> and I watched a really interesting interview with Guillermo del Toro after the movie, after I watched the movie. And he, he does. He says, you know, he's the gray Jesus. And when he's talking about vampirism, uh, he actually uh, thought, like, that that idea first came into his head when he was a child taking communion. And, and they said, you know, you eat my flesh, you drink my blood. He thought about connecting almost that idea of Jesus to vampires. And then also in this um, in this movie, when when Jesus dies, he's dead for three days. He's, you know, put into a tomb, basically, and then he's resurrected. Uh, so and, and and then Angel LaGuardia is, is is the guardian angel who um, who looks after his uncle and uh, who ultimately battles battles it out with you know Jesus, which in this in this sense you know pertains to that that kind of Catholic view of Jesus that uh, that Guillermo del Toro grew up with. He he calls this his lapsed Catholic movie, which I thought was really interesting because when you look at it through that lens, there's actually a lot of symbolism that pertains to pertains to that that idea, which is which is pretty cool. It's a I like that it's one of the, you know, we tried to step outside of American directors and mm-hmm. it's fun that the first 
Spanish director, his film has these overt Catholic tones. Yeah. You know, from a culture that is, I think, mostly Catholic? Probably. 100%. I, yeah. But um, it it is a... There are those... And this might be your opportunity if you want to come in with a Seven Deadly Sins. Maybe uh-huh. maybe even it's just one a movie. Maybe this one is a... Uh, uh, I'm blanking on all of the Seven Sins. Oh, I think I'd this give this one gluttony almost. Because the, there is like this hunger that, that permeates throughout the entire film. Um, there you go. Yeah, Title the podcast that instead of Kronos. <laughs> we'll just title one. I think we've got almost seven. Yeah, so maybe one or two more. Well, and the other thing too with Aurora, like his do- his granddaughter's name is Aurora, which means the dawn, and you know it's it's kind of this interesting thing because it's it's something that he that he strives for, but at the same time uh, marks the end of him as a vampire. Like the dawn is he can't he can't uh, you know function during the daytime, and then his wife's name is Mercedes, which means mercy, and there's all these you know really interesting ways that he overtly names characters. And I don't know if he's going to do this uh, as we move forward uh, throughout the movies, but I do think it's something to keep an eye out for because uh, the, the it's it's pretty overt I think, in this one. Uh, Blade and Hellboy, pretty uh-huh. overt. Yeah, it? but he didn't name those guys. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Being uh, a dip. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's... I I like this as a first... As a, a kickoff film, I think it's it easily shows uh, Guillermo del Toro's sensibilities. I think that that stuff can become really clear when you're working on a limited budget. I think uh, Shaun of the Dead and Reservoir Dogs had that same. You get to see them go from the the condensed version of their idea and they get to kind of expand it and add upon it and even subtract some stuff that's becomes unnecessary. And I think by the time we get to pan's labyrinth, we'll see that some of the overt naming gets removed, but the, Mm -hmm. the idea of mythology in a, with real kind of driving mechanisms will be much more obvious. Yeah. Um, and then we get to Pacific Rim, and I'm curious to see after we watch all of, after we see all of this, to get to what is really his biggest action movie. And we'll get a little bit of a dip into it with Blade as well. But well, and Hellboy, how does he Hellboy keep has those? A lot of action. Yeah, how does he keep those that mentality through what are not genre films or not horror genre films? Do you consider this to be a horror film? I don't know. I mean, I think that it's on the face of it. If you were going to market it, you'd call it a horror film. But I was, you know, I didn't think there were any truly scary moments in it. Um, I I felt pretty at ease throughout the most th- throughout most of the movie. It was it was just more of that interesting character study of the reluctant immortal <laughs> that, uh, and then seeing the changes, like uh, you know, when his skin peels off and stuff like that. You know, there's some gross out graphic uh macabre uh elements but i wouldn't call it necessarily horror but maybe that's because i don't really i don't my my definition of horror has been shaped by modern horror movies which are like you know jump scares and uh and uh you know violent torture porn and all that kind of stuff so <laughs> did you see 10 cloverfield lane recently as no well? i did and i want to see it so bad good lord that has put my horror scale 
so far, like, I mean, it's just yeah? cranked at the moment. I'm still coming off of that film. Well, how long ago did you see it? Uh, the weekend it came out, so last week. Who? Who? Who, doggy? Um, yeah, I, I definitely need to see that movie. Um, yeah, so, and, and you're right. When we look at this movie, we look at the first movies from, from all of our directors. They're always a little bit rough around the edges, and I would venture to say that this one is the roughest around the edges. Of, Certainly. Of the ones that we've covered. Between Shaun of the Dead, Reservoir Dogs, and Kronos, I would say that Kronos is probably the roughest around the edges. But when you hear about the way that this movie was made and kind of the passion with which, with which it was made, it's 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 understandable that it's going to be there's going to be some some roughness to it because this was like independent filmmaking at its core. There was no uh, you know studio connected to this movie. There was no distribution partner connected to this movie. It was this was a 28 year old Guillermo del Toro who had worked in you know, makeup and effects and that sort of thing. And, you know, putting this movie together on a shoestring budget, uh, writing Ron Perlman a letter and getting him to, to be a part of the movie yeah. um, and kind of fly by the seat of your pants, learn as you go type of film. So I give it a lot of credit. And I don't know if you know this, but it, it like swept the Mex- Mexican Oscars the year that it was released. Uh, so the other part about it is this is also just a... 1992 movie and maybe we need to think about it in that sense as well but when you think about it like 92 is i'm pretty sure when reservoir dogs came out yeah although i if you look at this one note that i had in here the music the yeah overture of the music felt like the 90s reservoir Mm -hmm. dogs with the diegetic music somehow was felt ahead of the curve and again 10 cloverfield lane does a great job with diegetic music and i think reservoir dogs and Quentin Tarantino is, was just ahead and maybe setting some standards. Yeah. And so movies like Kronos, Guillermo del Toro is a great director. I think he has some weaknesses and maybe music is uh, one, one in the sense that he falls back on convention more often. Yeah. Um, Cause that was definitely the one thing in this movie that just, out of after watching Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino, this yeah. one did not. But he also was on a very strict budget, and working out of Mexico is probably brings a whole different set of uh, issues for for production. So yeah, and for rights. But but I, I'm with you, man, because it wasn't just the type of music; it was the choice of music in different scenes that was. It threw me a little bit. I made a couple of notes about it. Uh, like there was a scene where we, the first time we see Ron Perlman's character, um, Angel LaGuardia, when he gets the call from his uncle and he starts to head up through the factory and up the elevator to to see his uncle. There's like this weird, like uneasy music that goes over the top of it, and I was like, "Am I supposed to be on edge about this? Like this is just a guy riding an elevator, like." It's not not that big of a deal, uh, and then it ends right before he gets into his uncle's room. So it was this. I, I I don't know if it was like filler music. It was just kind of off putting. And then there was a scene where the cockroaches come out of the statue at the antique store, and God, with the music, you would think that somebody was getting like slashed to death <laughs> with these cockroaches emerging. It's just like it's just some. It's just some bugs. I mean, it's kind of gross. That's. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's not it's not necessarily ward like this like slasher like zeet, 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 <laughs> music uh so yeah i'm with you i think that the musical choices um you know they were a little odd but but i think i think it's part of it was just the time period i think that it's not so much his choice as it is i try now i'm trying to go flip through my head think about like the old terminator movies yeah uh you know the music was fairly overt and really they tried to highlight every moment with music yeah so i don't know that it's that it was out of place at the time but definitely shows its age with it yeah i just listened to uh jim and aaron's podcast about uh princess bride (laughs) and that was one thing that they said is that like that that synth music synth orchestra music kind of took them out of it um there's a part of me that really likes that synth orchestra music when it's used in the right way because for me it does tie to the movies that I watched when I was a kid because like every movie had that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just I found the music a little bit off-putting. But I, you know, his forte going into this was character design, costuming, props, and all all of that stuff is top-notch for a movie that was made on a shoestring budget by a bunch of uh, by a bunch of amateurs, really. Um, just amazing makeup effects in this thing. I love the way that the vampire at the end is all gray, like his whole body's gray, his skin's peeling off. It's done really effectively. Uh, and also the, the the inner workings of the Kronos device, I thought that was really cool. They actually built a large, like six-foot, you know, long, uh, big version of that so they could film it. Um, so there's like a giant version of the Kronos device for the internal working so they could film that stuff and then and then uh, make it seem like it's just inside that little device. So in terms of prop design, in terms of makeup, makeup design, I feel like it's just really, really impressive considering how small of a movie that this was. I mean, usually that stuff's going to be pretty cheesy. Where do you come down on the design of the Kronos device? Were you digging mm-hmm. it? The clockwork, steampunk kind of aesthetic i liked it i thought it was really interesting i mean it's unlike anything that i had really seen um the bug was a nice twist yeah it was a live bug inside it just makes it that makes the device so much creepier yeah and it's odd because the stinger is mechanical but it's coming from and what is this bug what is this magical bug that grants vampirism yeah Yeah. it raises it's Raises more questions than it answers, which is kind of cool. Well, it's really cool. And, and the fact that, I mean, I like the idea that there's some kind of creature in the new world that this, you know, uh, this alchemist had found after he fled the Inquisition and went to Mexico, that he found some, like, bug here that <laughs> granted vampirism and that it's been, you know, squashed out over time. And the only surviving one exists inside uh, this device. Or, you know, maybe it exists like deep in the Amazon. You know, they talk about those bug species that there's, you know, all these undiscovered species that live deep in the Amazon. Maybe it's maybe it's floating around in there somewhere. Could be really interesting. Yeah, I love it. Um, let's talk about the opening, too, because the opening scene in this movie could be an entire movie in itself. <laughs> well, and like, it's... A- I- it's a pure del Toroism. I we see it time and again. Yeah. He likes to open his movies with a story being told. Yeah, and it's really beautifully done. Um, 
you know, for something that was obviously shot, you know, pretty hastily, it was really well, really well done. Uh, I love the whole clock making ex- aspect of it. And then <laughs> there's the the guy in and then the 1937 like being <laughs> exhumed from a building, and he, you know, is all blue and white. And then so you know right off the bat that this movie is going to get weird. But then we revert back to, you know, the family eating breakfast and the grandpa and the granddaughter. Um, so it, I just like the way that it sets it up that it, this is going to be a strange movie. But then it reverts right back to normalism and, and a, a quiet life. And you're like, OK, so this is this is just going to accelerate over time and get weirder and weirder and weirder, which I really like. And it's a nice scene because... There are little moments hidden in it. The Liz taught me this word while we were watching exsanguinating, uh-huh. <laughs> bleeding the guy out. That kind of made me. That made me think. Oh, this is gonna be a horror movie. Yeah, which I kind of expected from you know this the one word title and not a lot of information given on the cover um, for the film. But the fact that the guy died because something fell through. The, because he has the stake through his heart. Yeah. And I didn't catch that until we got to the end of the movie and they're trying to kill uh, <laughs> Jesus Grease. And I was like, oh, no, they got to stab him through the heart. Because cause at that point, you, you've you got that he's a vampire, but you don't know the extent of the rules. Yeah. Because, like you said, there's no nobody sits down and says, hey, here's vampires in our world. <laughs> Instead, the, the LaGuardia eats that part of the pages out of the book and all he says is oh there are rules and then that's it so you know there are rules but you don't know what they are so watching him get stabbed but there are hints that if you if you can call back to which there i'm sure there were some that i missed but Mm -hmm. the stake through the heart was a nice touch at the opening yeah when ron perlman tells his uncle that uh he killed him he his uncle keeps asking him what what about his heart was his heart okay like what happened to his heart so there there's that kind of that that kind of leads up to it and you're like oh it's the heart like i wasn't sure like if if he had to get the heart and maybe if he got the heart he would be able to get eternal life or or what but um that whole that whole sequence where you know they're trying to stab him and that's how you die is you get stabbed through the heart it was it was just odd to me it because the uncle knew it, but but Ron Perlman didn't. That's why he's beating him up with a blunt object, uh, and then he and then he's able to grab him and jump off of the building, which I thought was really great. That line, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it verbatim, but I just love it when he's like, you know, uh, it's just pain to me. Like I, I, I could fight you forever because all I get, all I do is get hurt, but you can actually die. I thought that was a really interesting concept in that final battle. Uh, between Jesus and Angel. Um, also, the oh, I really like the the comedy that gets injected into this during the mortician scene when they're preparing his body. It was downright Shakespearean. Like, yeah, it was. The, the notion that he turns away and then turns back and is like, oh, throw him in the fire, ignoring <laughs> that the door of the casket is open. Yeah. But I also love, I just love it when he's preparing the body and he... <laughs> <laughs> the guy, the guy's the character's name is Tito. The guy who's doing the makeup, and the mortician comes in and he's like, 
Oh, it's your best work ever. <laughs> it looks so good. As he's like stapling his face together and sewing his mouth shut and all of this stuff. And I, I love it when he's just putting the makeup on. He's like, you know, it takes a true artist, which which could be a you know, a call over to uh to these these, you know, Guillermo del Toro and his friends because they work in kind of creature creation, makeup artists and all of that. And maybe there's some tongue in cheek thing there that like uh that you know, people think anybody can do this, but it's actually really hard. And I love it when he comes out and is, when he's laying in the casket, his face looks horrible. It's completely uneven. You can tell there's these giant patches of rubber that are glued to it. Um, yeah, and 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 that guy definitely gets blown up, right, Tito? Oh yeah, when it goes up, for <laughs> well, sure. Because you can't you can't fix a gas leak by tying a cloth around the hose. <laughs> I'm like this guy is this guy is definitely gonna get blown up uh later on. Yeah, he's um, Tito's dead. I Tito's hope that he gets <laughs> Well, he's probably not getting an open casket. No, I don't think he's gonna plus who's gonna do it because you know he's the best makeup guy in town. <laughs> but yeah, I really like and it, yeah, when you say it's Shakespearean, it really is because those guys kind of pop in and they're two kind of goofballs and they just uh, they just kind of lighten the flavor a little bit. Everything's getting pretty dark, getting pretty macabre. Jesus has just died, and how can we lighten the mood? Well, we'll just throw these two goofballs in there for a quick scene that'll make you chuckle. Yeah, it's um, really the only comic relief. Yeah, totally. At that point. It's uh, they are they are the uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. They are the uh, Dogberry and uh, oh, I can't remember Dogberry's sidekick. I don't either. Yeah, <laughs> but uh. But yeah, they're they're the Shakespearean goofballs that, that pop into the middle of the film, which I really appreciate. Um, yeah, and uh, so I, I I watched this on Hulu. It's available to stream on Hulu, and the great thing on on Hulu is that it's part of their Criterion Collection. So after you watch the movie, you can watch like a bunch of interviews with all of the actors and the director and the producers, and and really get a good backstory on this movie. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about Guillermo del Toro is he said that, and this is definitely a motif that we need to watch for, he said that he really likes sad monsters. That uh, that really the monsters aren't the scary people in the in, in his movies. It's the, the humans are the scary people and the monsters are, are really sad. <laughs> and he does. In this movie, he creates like the saddest vampire that's ever existed. Um, it's a guy who is literally licking blood off of bathroom floors, you know? He never actually goes out and kills anybody. His granddaughter's the one who <laughs> who uh, bats LaGuardia in the face so that he can drain his blood, but, uh, but he never kills anybody. He's not really lurking around trying to murder people. He just kind of has this insatiable thirst that he can't, uh, that he can't satiate. That's what insatiable means. And it's... Um, it's- kind of his undoing in the or not his undoing that what makes him tragic is that he doesn't even get to live out his life as a vampire away from his family wandering the earth you know we don't get samuel yeah. jackson's cane <laughs> narrative yeah uh he has to kill himself because he has to destroy the device or he's in after he endangers his own granddaughter yeah because he sees the blood on her hand he wants to drink it and he just, and he can't live with himself 
And those lines are actually very powerful. The I think they're the final lines in the film is, I am Jesus Greece, I am Jesus Greece. He's making the choice to be human in that moment, even though he has gone beyond humanity. He's died and come back to life, and yet he still... Uh, He's, he needs to cling to his humanity, and in doing so, he needs to uh, destroy himself because it's the only way that he can cling on to his humanity is by killing himself. It's really an interesting interesting take on that monster genre. And um, and it, you know, that, it gives you that uniqueness. It's not just a scary guy roaming the countryside trying to murder people. It's, it's a reluctant monster, which well, is really you- interesting. Have you read the original Frankenstein? No. Frankenstein. The closest that I've done is I've seen the Wishbone episode on it. <laughs> which does a pretty good job from what I understand. Do they cover He's a tragic character. Oh yeah. He's not the the mumbling monster that the villagers burn. He no. is hyper intelligent to the point where he surpasses almost surpasses his maker and he yeah. is simply rejected by society because of how he looks. They don't even describe how he looks. They just people cannot under cannot conceive of uh, they cannot handle his presence and he's mm-hmm. driven away from society. And that's and when he kills uh the when the doctor dies, that's kind of it. That was his only link to humanity and he he basically i think he ends his life i think you see a giant fire in the distance or something mm. at the end but it's it makes frankenstein's monster such a tragic character it's that humanity that's all that it takes to be yeah. a tragic monster because humanity is what's relatable yeah and it's interesting because it's what separates yeah it separates these you know characters it's it's actually the thing that makes superman interesting like People are like, you know, Superman isn't interesting because he's overpowered and and uh, and all that. And he just, you know, has every superpower and he's really good. Like, he's not interesting. Everybody likes Batman um, because, you know, his parents are dead and he's a billionaire and, you know, whatever. He's but, nuts. But the thing about uh, Clark Kent is that he is infinitely alone because he is human and yet he's not human. He is separated from everybody that he knows even his own parents even his own family he he's he's different from them and so it's him trying to cope with trying to be human and yet not being human um that's where that's where a lot of that drama comes from it's the same exact thing that jesus has in this movie that at the end when it's it's uh he he decides to be human and inhuman and the only way that he can exhibit his humanity is by killing himself it's really interesting. Um, let's talk about the lore for a second, though. So why does smashing the bug kill him? Is it because he needs to use it repeatedly or else he dies? Yeah, it seems based on how he handled it earlier in the movie, he had to get mm-hmm. intravenous, injection, in, uh, intravenous injections. Yeah. And they don't clarify whether that's... Uh, necessary for just the transformation mm-hmm. or if he can use it in place of drinking blood, which it does not appear to be because he still devours Guardia. Yeah. Uh, my assumption is, is that because, because of the way Guillermo del Toro thinks he's got a mechanic for it. If you've yeah. read or watched the strain, he really wants to have an explanation for why vampires drink blood and so my argument would be whatever 
the injection the bug is giving carries the secret to um, immortality, but it requires the additional component of of blood, of yeah, human blood. Of human blood. Yeah, it's because he doesn't die immediately either. I mean, he kind of dies at home, um, surrounded by his loved ones. Uh, but it was a little, it was a little off to me because I didn't really understand why smashing the the machine killed him as well. But yeah, there was that addictive property to it where he needed to do it over and over. Um, when he goes from his hand to his heart, I mean, he's yep. just upping the high over time. <laughs> yeah, straight, just main to the point where it. he's licking blood off the floor. <laughs> yeah, there was a. I, I also really liked how earlier in the movie you don't really get it. If I mean, I didn't get it because I didn't know this was a vampire movie. But when he, it's right after he's been stung the first time when it's like the accidental sting into his hand, and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes down to the kitchen and he opens the fridge and he just starts guzzling water out of this pitcher, and he just guzzles and guzzles and guzzles guzzles water and then he looks and there's like a bunch of you know carne asada on a plate at the bottom of the um at the bottom of the fridge and there's blood at the bottom of it and he and he you know feels something inside himself and he like closes the fridge and understanding in hindsight that that's him trying to waking up with this intense thirst that he cannot uh quench and then he looks at that meat, and he's like, oh, that, that looks pretty good. But then, like, I can't do that. I'm not going to drink the blood off the plates. Um, really, really interesting. And then and then when he's at the New Year's party, and he sees the bloody nose, and you don't really know what's happening. Like, I'm like, did he somehow cause this? Is this some kind of mysticism? Like, what's going on here? And then he follows the guy to the bathroom, and then you see him start, you know, puddling up the blood. And this is the moment where he almost... Or this is the moment where he where he basically becomes a vampire is in this bathroom and it, the interesting thing it happening right at New Year's like it's it's a new beginning for him uh, and this is like the moment when he when he drinks blood for the first time a lot of cool things man that line up really well I would like credit for when he looks at the red meat in the fridge because mm-hmm. I've seen enough movies at this point my notes say vampire question mark <laughs> nice. At that point, I was beginning to, and just knowing Del Toro's love of vampires. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I didn't watch The Strain at all. Um, I didn't watch the show. I read the book, but the book was. Uh, I hmm. get okay. Vampires. Can we do mummies? Can we go? I really liked the Mummy yep. as a kid. Let's spend you know, a little more time with mummies. They're redoing the Mummy with who? I believe with uh, with Tom Cruise. Bring Brendan Fraser back, I say. <laughs> one more yeah, time. Know, Give him one more chance. I feel like I feel like um, Brendan Fraser should like be on the next season of True Detective. <laughs> oh, that would be that's a really good idea. Yeah, I am wholeheartedly on board with that. So Alex Kurtzman is directing the Mummy. Um, <laughs> he's got. He's got one directing credit, but you know him from because he's most most famously a producer and a writer. Um, so he's you know Star Trek. Uh, I think he was worked on Lost as well. I might be wrong. He was on Alias. So he's a con- he's a common uh, collaborator with J.J. Abrams, and he's going to be doing the new 
mummy movie starring Tom Cruise. So deal with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's it for uh, Tom Cruise watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to go back to the bathroom scene, though. Because there's a moment in here where there's a joke that I feel like you would get if you were Mexican and you don't get if you're if you're American. And What's that's that? where the guy is cleaning up the blood, which Lydia was like recoiling in horror at because <laughs> she's uh she's, you know, a very sterile person, like cleaning up a blood some random person's blood off a counter with your bare hands <laughs> and then not washing your hands afterwards. <laughs> Like, what is this guy's deal? Um, but while he's doing it, he says somebody, like, some an Argentinian or Peruvian snuck into the party. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, is is it a, is it a cocaine joke? Like, are, are Argentinians and Peruvians known to do a lot of cocaine and so that they would get a bloody nose? Or like, why is the why is the pile of blood the first thing that comes to the guy's mind is Argentinian or Peruvian? Um, you know, I have been to Peru, and all I know is that from the time I've spent in South America, they all just like to throw shade at each other a lot. <laughs> like, just every country not a fan of their neighbors. Even Mex- and Mexico City is not really not close to either of those, but they just yeah kind of throw. I'll double check with Liz and make sure there's not some sort of cultural joke there. Or write us on the forums if you happen yeah, to know, you know what, what is Mexico's is. beef with Argentina and Peru. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, if he said Colombia, I would know right away <laughs> that he was talking about the nose candy. But I had no idea what the Argentinian or Peruvian. But what kind of coke are you doing that you're bleeding out your nose? If you do too much coke, you ble- your nose bleeds. Really? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's because it dries out your you know sinus cavities and all that. Haven't been or I, I don't roll in circles high enough to really know much mm. about Coke. You need to watch more Quentin Tarantino movies, my friend. Let's take another <laughs> pass. <laughs> um. Uh. So some other things here, Guillermo del Toro that he was talking about more thematic things that I think we can draw on later, uh, since this is our first Quint or. First Quintertino, first Guillermo del Toro movie. Uh, he says that he finds a lot of uh, he finds a lot of satisfaction in the serene and in the grotesque, and he likes to use the fantastic as a vehicle to get to either serenity or grotesqueness. I don't think there's a ton of serenity in this movie, but there's plenty of grotesqueness, and I kind of love the idea of that super gross grotesque thing but you know wrapped in that beautiful almost museum almost has a museum quality to it and the thing that really i think about in this movie is the guy keeps all of his tumors in like jars in his room uh i really was very very interested in this laguardia character um because when we go into laguardia's room it's kind of the game changer it it turns from this like you know, happy, uh, happy Mexican guy in his antique shop, and then we go to this factory. It's all very familiar stuff, and then we enter this room that is super creepy and only becomes more grotesque the more that we learn about it. Um, specifically, I thought it was really interesting because they were they were looking for a statue of an archangel or arc archangel archangel. 
<laughs> right? And so they've been, you know, combing through all of these statues over and over and over again. And all of the ones that, you know, haven't worked, they're all kind of um, hanging up in that tomb of a room. And it's interesting to me because it's kind of like all of these fallen angels. You know, there's almost that biblical uh, biblical tie-in there thematically uh, in that room. It's just, it's just a room with, with hanging angels throughout it. Um, and yeah, I, I think it just kind of draws on that. Well, and um, this is the – I think the LaGuardias as a pair are really – the word I read somewhere was they're, they're very surreal because that room is so clean compared to all of the – especially you look at the pawn shop. The pawn shop's just overflowing. The homes on the roof uh, where Aurora is hiding out, those are all very cluttered and kind of chaotic spaces yeah, but the first that thing room I wrote is just I, so organized. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I wrote when when we're going in, and I I think this is Mexico City, but yes. we're just getting the establishing st- shots. There was so much litter everywhere. You know, you're right. Every everything is really cluttered, and so in contrast to all of the cluttered spaces, you're right. The sterile environment is stands out. And really, if if Jesus Greece is a stand-in for Jesus in some mm-hmm. ways, I think LaGuardia is inherently participating as the devil in the story because mm. he tries to tempt Jesus into releasing immortality. You know, he yeah. offers him, I can get you out of this. And there's the Bible passage where he spends 40, Jesus spends 40 days in the desert and yep. the whole time the devil's telling him, hey, I can get you out of this. All you got to do is just throw me a bone here. Mm-hmm. And you get the very same dynamic here. And it has to be Jesus chooses his out, not instead yeah. of being at the hands of LaGuardia. Yep. That was something that uh, that Del Toro explicitly said and he said it's in all of my movies so look out for it is that it's people making the choice for themselves of how to deal with the situation and not allowing outside forces to have uh to make the ultimate final decision for them well that's the main one of the main tenets of christianity is free will Mm -hmm. we are free to choose our our fate and i think that's where immortality comes in because how do you choose to be, in some ways how to choose to be remembered yeah and you talked about uh, uh, uh immortality being an old mm-hmm. story the epic of gilgamesh from if i'm and i may be rough on this it was mm-hmm. a long time ago that i took western history and i <laughs> read the epic of gilgamesh for it and as part of his journey he tries to attain immortality and yep. the gods tell him that you're not going to get it the way you want it. You can leave an empire and your great works will be how people remember you. You can leave your family, which Aurora is the obvious stand in her father's dead, but she lives on. And so there is still that connection from Jesus to Aurora, despite Mm -hmm. a death in the middle. Yeah. Um, So it was your works, your kids. And then I think the third was the gods, but you can't do that. (laughs) <laughs> I might have brutally murdered that, but that's something that's always that's what got me through 
AP English was the notion that <laughs> everything is about sex or death. And ultimately it's because those things are wrapped up underneath the notion of immortality because nobody wants to die. It sucks. Yeah. But well, is it really all it's cracked up to be? Well, that's the thing is that when I think about immortality and the idea of living forever, it's terrifying to me. Like, I like having an ending. <laughs> you know, I like that there's an end. Like, maybe, uh, maybe it's because I watch too many movies, but I, I want an ending. I don't want, I don't want it to go on forever. Um, so it, it, I really love it. I love the reluctant immortal. I, I love that theme in this idea. And also the way that it was really an accident how he got immortality. And yet it's completely irreversible. Like, this is your life now, so deal with it. This is also uh, a PSA. Kids, don't play with clockwork shit <laughs> that is just laying around. Leave it alone. You don't know what's in there. <laughs> is it heavy? Yeah. Then it's expensive. <laughs> Put it down. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, some other things that tie into Jesus, though, that uh, Guillermo del Toro explicitly called out. Um, the way where he gets his wounds, like, basically... Uh, they they mirror like stigmata. Like the first one's in the palm of his hand, the second one it's in his oh, chest. I miss that. You know the idea is he, Jesus got stabbed in the side, not the upper chest. But but Close then enough. the the other thing that's really interesting is the end when his skin is peeling off on his stomach. He almost has like a doubting Thomas moment where he shoves his hand inside his skin and goes underneath. That was that was one of the moments when I was like. That's pretty. That was pretty. That may be pretty uneasy, but still, this movie doesn't go into like horror, horror movie territory for me. And maybe, like I said, I think it might be that I don't have a good grasp of classic horror, um, and I've gotten too into you know I have I have too many examples of slasher films and, um, and uh, jump scare films and torture porn, which is basically what it's what horrors become today. I mean, would you categorize would you categorize a movie like Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey as a horror movie? No, I don't think so. But I could see why it might be taken that way because it's got that dread element to it. Well, and there's a that has the same notion of or the same theme of inevitability and fate. Yeah, and what's kind of what drives that? I think so, and that's kind of a scary notion whether you know, the question of free will can be frightening it's like in uh, pulp fiction when uh, samuel L. jackson tells him if you if my answers frighten you you should cease asking scary questions i think <laughs> a movie like this asks a square scary question what does immortality what is immortality worth yeah and let's talk quickly too about Aurora because Aurora is a she's a stabilizing force throughout this movie, but she's also twisted, dude. And she only has one line in the whole movie. I think <laughs> I only counted one line. It's at the very end when she says "abuela," when she says "grandpa." Yeah, I assumed her. she was mute. Yeah, at some point. I mean, got a really, really strong Danny from um, the Shining vibe. <laughs> In fact, I thought it was a little boy at the beginning. I didn't know it was a little girl because she's got the same haircut as Danny in The Shining. Um, so there's that really strong vibe. But then her 
So I think that that this is one of the things that kind of uh, bothered me about the movie is there were decisions made about her character and through her character that I was just like really and then in and in, and then pertaining to her character like when she follows her grandpa to the factory at the end of the movie <laughs> there's still time to go and take her back home like you don't have to be like well she's here now I'm gonna go up to see this guy who wants to kill me yeah they specifically <laughs> stated they were open 24 7 yeah they're open all night man take her home and come back <laughs> they'll still be here yeah, I, I actually wrote down in my notes. There's the there's the scene when um, after uh, the old Laguardia gets killed in his room, and then on Hell is up there. Instead of trying to leave through the building, he smashes a window and climbs out onto the roof. Like <laughs> you never, if you're running away from somebody, don't ever go up. That limits your options exponentially. Always that's, go down. That's vampire instinct right there. Yeah. I was trying. To, I, was half, I was half expecting him to turn into a bat and fly away. <laughs> yeah, when that happened, and then when they get on the roof and to run away from him further, they climb up onto the sign even higher. That was what I wrote in my notes. Bad decision, Olympics. Yeah, I also have a note here about nobody in this movie has any peripheral vision. Everybody <laughs> just refuses to look past the 60-degree cone in front of their face. Yeah. And so many people get the... But Aurora has to be there. She saves uh, Abuelo Grease from mm-hmm. the bad guy with the when she knocks that fool out with his own... His creepy owl cane. Yeah. Did you notice these owls? I did notice the owls. I was wondering about symbolism there. I'm thinking Court um, of the Owls. I don't know. Thinking Court of the Owls. There's <laughs> also there's the whole thing about uh what is it, Molech? Um this was all got this this all came about on the season two of True Detective, getting into the lore of it and uh, all that. Yeah. There's the Molech, which is at the um he's like this owl god that's at this uh uh, that this at this place called Bohemian something the retreat Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove, yeah. So there was that. I I don't know what this. I there's got to be some kind of symbolism with the owl, though. I it think. could be the notion of wisdom in relation to yep. immortality. Totally. The fact that uh, Laguardia Dietro de Laguardia has lived so long, mm-hmm. you know, he's clearly fighting with the notion of his death and he's done it through sheer intelligence by removing his organs. And, you know, he has developed a, a new right hand in the sense of his, of his nephew. So that was, that's kind of the base reading of Al is generally a stand in for, for wisdom. So yep. it's the idea that even that does not want to wisdom is so hard fought for. It's a hard thing to give up. I well, think, and uh, it's the idea that you can never be like it doesn't matter how much intelligence you have as a human being compared to all of the intelligence that is in or and compared to everything that there is to know in the universe, you're an idiot, even the smartest person in the world, and it is the one thing that dies with you it's It's something that you can't completely transfer to something else is your own intelligence and your mindfulness, so once you're gone, it's gone as well. You could write books, and you can make videos, and you could do as much as you can to try and communicate to other people, but the only person who really understands it is you. You're, you're trapped inside your body for this mortal for this mortal period. So, And that's um, one of the central themes of Blade Runner that is 
mm-hmm. I think the most powerful when uh, spoiler alert for anybody that hasn't watched Blade Runner, but shame on you for not seeing it. When the when uh, the cyborg when the robot dies at the end, and he talks about the things that he has seen, and those will all be lost like tears in the rain. It's a really powerful moment to think about, especially when you lose loved ones. Yeah, all of that knowledge. You think about the the pawn shop that uh, Grandpa Grease has been running. I think it's an antique store or the antique store, but all of the yeah. things that he's accumulated in there and the knowledge yeah. that comes with all of those things. And Aurora is now without that. Yeah, and one of the things that um, that Guillermo del Toro said in his interview is that you can't have love without lust, and you can't have life without curiosity. Basically, curiosity is lust for non-sexual things. And really, Jesus in this movie is so curious about everything. It's what leads him to, um, you know, tap on the archangel. Why can't I say this? Archangel (laughs) sculpture? Aaron can't pronounce Martinez, so you get a pass (laughs) on archangel. Um, But, you know, it's the thing that, that leads him to open it up. It's the thing that leads him to twist the uh, Kronos device. Um, and he's he's a, he's an innately curious person. So I love the idea of that, of, like, curiosity, you know, compelling you. Um, yeah. And th- there was one more thing that I wanted to say about the, uh, about the older LaGuardia. Um, but I can't remember what it was. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I think it might be time to end the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I do have um, one moment I'd like to take for yeah. what I'm going to call Del Toro Watch. Okay. So that we can keep up on what movies he is and is not on. I know we talked a little bit out okay. of the prologue, but since the prologue, I caught this on Reddit. By Variety, Guillermo Del Toro's currently in negotiations to do a Cold War movie for Fox. Yeah. I so, saw that as well. I'm kind of hoping, for comedic sake, that he is off the movie by the end of the podcast, <laughs> but uh, or that there's a new movie that he's attached to next week. Well, and apparently, if you type it in, Octavia Spencer joins Guillermo del Toro's Cold War movie. I really hope it's something about like Cold War, like atomic experiments or something. You know, there's got to be something that's genre. Esque about it, right? And yeah, I, they, this is they, saying Cold War love story. Mm. So, well, and they also they touched on there was like I, I really like the uh, the Russian um, Jaeger in Pacific Rim. Oh yeah, and how it was like, like nuclear run and all of that. So yeah, like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm giving this movie a fifty fifty shot of going to production. So. Really, I should be given like a 40% shot based on the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, keep it up, Del Toro. We love your Keep staff. it up, man. No, I'm, I'm really excited to uh, to kind of embark on this journey. So next week, I believe we have Mimic. Yeah, it's another Mimic one I have not one. seen. I haven't seen it either. I'm interested to also read into the uh, kind of the background uh, stories about Mimic because apparently it was, it was a bit of a troubled set, so... Uh, like I'm haunted? To... No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm excited to see it. And I, I guess this one is not it's a Spanish language, language film. It's got Josh Brolin in it. It's got Mira Sorvino's in it. Um, Norman Reedus is in it. 
Really? That's yeah. cool. This is shit. Yeah. I, I'm I'm actively like I pulled up his directorial thing on, but I'm actively not looking at the 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 synopsis for Mimic. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know. I just want another great surprise. Yeah, because it was really cool this time. Like going in not knowing that Kronos was about vampires and seeing how it manifested itself. Um. All right. Well, let's uh let's write backwards in Latin and close <laughs> the book on Kronos. Uh, folks, please get in touch with us. Forums.ballmove.com. You can go on there. Be a part of the conversation. We will have a forum up for Mimic uh, as soon as this podcast is posted. So please go there and chat about it there. Um, also, send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. Love to read your thoughts on the air. And I never say this, but I should have, like, a lot. If you like the, if you like this podcast... Uh, please go on iTunes, rate and review it, because it's a great way to help us gain visibility as a podcast, get more listeners, the community grows, and it becomes a self-perpetuating thing. So uh, if you could rate and review us on iTunes, it takes about two minutes, and it does a world of good for both Levi and I. And until next week, we're going to be watching Mimic, and until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.